0: So we're going to start in Judges 6, verses 1 to 16. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abbey where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. We're now going to skip forward to verses 25 to 32. From verse 25. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerubbaal Baal that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. We're now going to skip forward to chapter 7. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, Baal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod, The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men, I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow out our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were about to blow, they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords the army fled to Beth-Shittar towards zareah as far as the border of Abel-Mahola, Nitabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them, as far as beth barah So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barra. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the Rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. We're going to finish off this story at chapter 8, verses 13 to 32. So skipping forward a little bit to verses 13. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Harris. He caught a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. And the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Sukkoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Sukkoth, Here are Zabar and Zalmanar, about whom you taunted me by saying, do you already have the hands of Zabar and Zalmanar in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Then he asked Zabar and Zalmanar, What kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jetha, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jethar did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zabar and Zalmanar said, come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camels' necks. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on the camel's necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus, Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. Jerob Baal, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up baal Berith as their god and did not remember the Lord their god who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jerob that is, Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. And to finish off, we've just got a New Testament passage. If we can flip to Second Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 30. And that will be the end. So Second Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who was 14 years who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong.
1: Thanks, Hannah. That was a lot of reading. Uh, Well done, everyone, for concentrating on the way through. Uh, It'll be a great help if you keep your Bibles open to Judges 6 to 8. And we are going to take our time to work through those uh, chapters. There's a lot of action. There's a lot happening. um, But we want to see what God has to tell us from that ancient story and here's my question for tonight how are you going to cope with success how are you going to cope with success normally uh, you think about how you're going to cope with failure you know when hardships come but what about when you win if you're a student you've got exams coming up what happens if you do really well uh, what about if you're a worker and you get a promotion, you just move up a little bit? How are you going to cope with success? Because there's actually a danger to success a danger that you'll get ahead of yourself, that you'll believe your own hype. Uh, some people become insufferable when they win, arrogant. Or suddenly you, you achieve something and suddenly there's pressure to perform. Uh, to keep up the same standard and so you get defensive, you can't take any criticism and you put these ultra-demands on everyone else around you. So do you have a plan? How will you cope with success? If success finds you, how will you make sure it doesn't ruin you? Tonight uh, we meet Gideon. Uh, Gideon is another of those anti-heroes, those complicated, deeply flawed champions that God raises up in the book of Judges. And our series in Judges is called Strength Through Weakness because that's what happens. Uh, God uses these weak judges to show off his power to save. But there's two parts to the Gideon story. There's the story of how God shows his strength through Gideon's weakness. But there's also the story of what happens After he wins. And we're going to see those two things tonight. We're going to see the necessity of weakness and the perversity of strength. The necessity of weakness and the perversity of strength. So, firstly, the necessity of weakness. Uh, Chapter 6 starts again with this judge's cycle Israel do evil, uh, and so the Lord gives them over into the hands of their enemies. And this time, it's the Midianites. Uh, The Midianites were nomads from the east. They moved about the desert on camels, you know, in tents, that kind of thing. And they were way better at fighting than at farming. And so they kind of focused on the former rather than the latter. Um, There in verse 3, when Israel planted their crops, the Midianites invaded the country, set up camp, ravaged the land. It's one thing to have your crops fail because you you don't get enough rain or because of pests or something, but somehow this is worse, right? You do all the work. You make a bumper crop and it comes just up to harvest time and in come the Midianites like a swarm of locusts, it says. And you have to run to the hills and hide in caves and watch while they eat everything you've worked for. And so, uh, following the same pattern, Israel do evil, uh, God gives them into the hands of their enemies, and then Israel cry out to God. And then God sends them a judge. But not yet. First, did you notice, he sends them a prophet in verse 8. Not a rescuer, but a messenger. And what does God tell them? Verse 10, uh, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. Idolatry is a big part of the Gideon story. Before God sends them a judge to rescue them, he sends them a prophet. They have to know the reason why all this is happening. They've worshipped other gods. And that's the thing that needs to get sorted out, even before you get to the Midianites. And that brings us to Gideon. Gideon is the one who's there as the rescuer. The angel of the Lord appears to him and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But let's be honest, right? That feels kind of generous, doesn't it? Because look where he is there in verse 11. Where is he? He's threshing wheat in a wine press, just like in a vat, right? I don't know much about ancient farming techniques, but that feels suboptimal, doesn't it? It's kind of like threshing. You need space. You need to toss the wheat into the air to separate out the grain. And he's doing it in this kind of this little tub, right? It's like doing gymnastics in a wardrobe. He's trying to hide. He can't do it out in the open, or the Midianites will see it. He's afraid. But Judges wants us to see the necessity of weakness. Gideon is weak. Look at verse 15. He says, pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Gideon is not cut out for this job. But he doesn't have to be. Gideon is weak. But here's the crucial thing. God is with him. God is with him. Notice that. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. That's how he can be called mighty warrior. The Lord is with you. Or verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Do you ever have that uh, feeling when you think to yourself, man, I'm not up to this? Some aspect of your uh, Christian life and you think, I, I just can't do it. I, I actually can't. Maybe it's, it's where well, you feel like when you're trying to resist temptation. Maybe it's the thought of talking to someone about Jesus. Maybe it's just being patient with someone, showing godliness in a certain situation. And you think to yourself, I can't do it. And the reality is, you can't. But if you're you're a Christian, then God is with you by his spirit. And you might feel like ducking down in a wine press, but he is there with you. And he's the one who strengthens his people to do what he asks. Uh, When I was doing ministry training on campus at UWA, uh, there was a girl who was part of the CU there and... Um, she'd become a Christian, and it was amazing, really. She was part of this tight-knit group of friends uh, who were actually really hostile to Christianity, really condescending. And uh, she had uh, become a Christian, and so she'd invited them along to a gospel talk that we'd had. And afterwards, I was chatting with them, and they weren't really interested, just kind of interested in arguing uh, mostly. Um, But this girl... uh, Managed somehow to convince them that we should all uh, meet up together to talk some more. She really wanted them to to come to know Jesus. And so we did. Uh, In the end, we, we met every week for the rest of that semester. But it certainly wasn't because of me. These guys were smart and they were cynical and they were full of scorn, and I hated it. I didn't want to go any week. I I remember I'd, I'd walk up to the Hackett Cafe and I'd stop and I wouldn't want to go in. And I would stand there for like five minutes. And all I could do was pray, God, do something. I was afraid. I really was. And I'm grateful to God for that experience because it really exposed how weak I was. I actually couldn't do it myself. Yeah, I've, I've burst the bubble of how terrific all your ministry trainees are and your, your pastors. But God is good. And he is with his people, strengthening his people. Back to Judges. Uh, next, God sends Gideon to wipe out the Midianites, doesn't he? Not yet. Uh, first, God sends Gideon to cut down an idol. Uh, Gideon is a woodcutter's name. Uh, Gideon means hacker. He is there to hack things down. That's his job, uh, to hack down the Asherah pole, to tear down this altar to Baal. And how does Gideon feel about it? He's afraid. He's afraid. Verse 27. He goes and does it at night. And you can just imagine him uh, there with the axe, axe there under the cover of darkness, So loud, isn't it? Just not wanting to be caught, not wanting anyone to see him. But God wants us to see the necessity of weakness in this situation. Of course he's weak. God is the strong one. Uh, You see the irony of the whole setup. The town uh, finds out that it's him and they do try to kill him. He was right to be afraid. And so Gideon's father comes out and he says, let Baal deal with him. Uh, verse 31 If Baal really is God, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. And you see the irony? Yahweh is about to come and fight for his people. But Baal needs people to fight for him. God is the strong one, He's the one in charge. Gideon just needs to stick with what God wants, to do what He says. Israel's real problem isn't the Midianites, it's the Baals. It's their unfaithfulness to these idols. And God wants Gideon to deal with that first. Only after he's hacked down the Asherah pole can we move on to the battle in chapter 7. And so, chapter 7, uh, we finally get to the battle. Not yet. The Spirit of the Lord clothes Gideon and he calls Israel and he raises an army and it all seems to be going great until God says those five words that no army commander wants to hear You have too many men. And you can only imagine how Gideon is feeling at this point. The guy that we met in the wine press hiding from the Midianites, the guy who snuck out at night to cut down the idol, how is he feeling? As God cuts his army from 32,000 down to 10,000. Thanks. Thanks very much. I hate it. God says, that's still too many. He cuts it down from 10,000 to 300. 300, it's insane. That's not an army. That's a school assembly. That, that, that's just a, that's a lecture if everyone turns up, right? <laughs> it's just a ridiculous number. But look at why. Here's where we've been leading to the whole way, right? Verse two, chapter seven. The Lord said to Gideon, "You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me." That's the point. It's the necessity of weakness. It must be like this. God insists upon it. See, the problem with a big army is that Israel would think that they did it. And God won't have it like that. See, their real problem is idolatry. And if they think that they did it, then they'll just keep on trusting themselves, keep on trusting their idols. And so God says, no, it must be weakness. So that you know it's from me. And really, that same uh, danger exists for us. If our ministries are big and influential, and if our leaders are charismatic and successful in a worldly point of view, then there is a danger that we become functional pagans. Functional pagans where we have all these impressive strategies and resources and we think that's what did the trick, right? That we trust in our own capabilities instead of God, instead of prayerfully depending on what God alone can do. See, weakness is a necessity. It's not a bug. It's a feature of how God works. God wants it like that. They go to the battle with 300 men. That's how God's going to work. And again, uh, as we move on to the battle, uh, see the beautiful irony of the situation. Uh, They go there and they shout, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. But of course, they don't have any swords, right? They've got a trumpet and a torch in, in a clay jar. And I wonder if they're aware of how ridiculous they are when they say this. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Mm. Doing the trumpet, like, they have nothing. But look what happens, verse 22. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. See that, the Lord caused. God defeats the Midianites just like he said. He does it with a tiny army. In fact, he insists upon a tiny army with no swords so that everyone will see that he did it and not Israel. See, when it comes to God's saving work in this world, he deliberately uses weakness, people like you and me, for his purposes. And he does it so that all the glory will go to him so that we are drawn to worship him and not trust in our own strength. We really need to kind of soak in that reality, just in the necessity of weakness. Not to puff ourselves up like we're strong, but to embrace the fact that we don't have it all together, that we are weak and that we need the Lord to work That's part one, the necessity of weakness. Uh, But there's another thread to this story. Uh, Because Gideon does win. And then he's faced with the challenge of how is he going to cope with success? And that's part two, the perversity of strength. Uh, Look what happens after he wins. Uh, This is the kind of chapter 8 portion that we read. The two Midianite kings escape, these these two guys, uh, and uh, he chases after them. But as he goes along, he's going through Israel. And some of the people of Succoth and Peniel refuse to help. They they don't feed his troops as they go along the way. And Gideon is mad. Look at his reaction there, chapter 8, verse 9. So he said to the men of Peniel, When I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. And that's exactly what he does. He captures the kings and he goes back and he teaches them a lesson. First in Succoth. And then in verse 17, he also pulled down the Tower of Peniel. Keep reading. And he killed the men of the town. See, the power's gone to his head. See the perversity of strength? Now that he's got it, he is brutal. God gave him nothing but grace and patience back when he was afraid. But now he shows none of that to people from Israel. Now he's a mighty warrior. He's in charge, acting out of revenge, out of spite. Next he turns on the Midianite kings and we get this awful scene. He, find, uh, he finds out that these kings are the guys who killed his brothers and so Gideon tells his son, Jetha. To kill them. Uh, he's really turned uh, willing to use his son to execute these men. But of course Jetha doesn't. Why? It says there, because he was afraid. He's a reminder of the old Gideon. The weak one, the one who had to trust God. Gideon is not like that now. He hasn't coped with success. Success has ruined him. He's full of himself and his own importance now. And so the two kings uh, of the Midianites, they tease Gideon. They bully him into it almost. Ziba and Zalmana, there in verse 21, they say, Come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. Show us how strong you are, Gideon. Do it. And he does. He is Gideon, the hacker. Not hacking down idols anymore. Hacking down captives out of revenge. The whole scene does have a, like a Star Wars-esque vibe. You know, just like Anakin Skywalker morphing into Darth Vader. As, as this thread of the story takes over and we see the way that, uh, the, kind of the perversity of the strength that, Gideon has and he takes the royal ornaments off the the camels of the Midianite kings and he takes them for himself and suddenly are clothed in glory himself. In fact, even though Gideon turns down the offer to become ruler over Israel, he basically starts to act like he's the king. In fact, he names his own son Abimelech, which literally means my father is king. Yeah. Like that is some kind of flex to give your son that name. But it gets worse. To consolidate his power, Gideon makes his town the centre of worship by building an idol. Have a look there. Chapter 8, verse 27. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, this idol thing. Um, into an ephod which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. He manages to undo everything all the way back to idol worship. And can you see just the perversity of this situation? He takes the success that God has given him and he arrogantly thinks, I did it. And he cuts God out of the picture entirely. And it makes you look back at the rest of the Gideon story and realise the seeds were there all along. A sword for the Lord. And for Gideon. It was always going to be about him. He puts himself into the war cry. And when the Midianites flee, the first thing he does is call in all the people that God sent home. And God knew God knew this would happen, right back in chapter 7, verse 2, that, if, that Israel would boast, saying, my own strength has saved me. See, can you see the perversity of strength? God was merciful and gave them success, and Gideon responds by becoming arrogant. Arrogant. That's the two parts of the Gideon saga, the necessity of weakness and the perversity of strength. And really, that should be a warning to us, a warning to us. Because the same kind of thing can happen to us, uh, not in as brutal a fashion as Gideon, um, but I love taking the credit for things. I love it when I get praise for stuff. And it's a danger for us at work or at uni. When we succeed, we think that we did it and we claim the credit for ourselves. And it breeds an attitude of arrogance in us when we receive the glory and don't acknowledge God and all that he's given us. And it's even more of a danger here at church too. We've just finished a fantastic kids' holiday club Uh, medieval mania. It was a huge success. It really was the most kids ever. And judges would say, watch out. Watch out. See, it's easy for us to act like we did it. An event for the Lord and for St Matthew's. To insert ourselves into the credit. And then We just become functional pagans. Just in the way that we we act. The way that we plan for next year. Where we put the focus on our own reputation, on on making it big and successful. Instead of thinking about faithfulness. What would it look like to make that something that honours the Lord? We need to keep our focus on that. So how do we avoid that danger? The danger of success. Uh, Well, uh, in 2 Corinthians, Paul would say that it comes down to how you talk about it. How you talk about it. Where you put the credit. See, Paul simply will not boast about himself. As he goes about his ministry, he will not claim the credit. Because to do that undermines the whole thing. Because if he does that, then God's grace is not the thing that makes the difference. And so instead, verse 30, he says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. In his ministry, Paul boasts about his weakness. The things that show God's power must be at work. He says, I was lowered in a basket. Just humiliating things happened to me. He says, I had God gave me this thorn In my flesh. And he says, God gave it to me on purpose. So I wouldn't get arrogant. So I wouldn't go the same way as Gideon. And when we talk about ourselves, uh, when we talk about things like mania, we need to talk like that. We need to say, man, you know, so many people came, didn't they? Praise God for that. We didn't even get the notice in the school newsletter But God brought people along anyway. Praise God. Say things like, I was so scared getting up the front there, especially on Friday night when all the the parents were around, but God really did his work, didn't he? We need to talk like that, the way that we point each other, not to what we have done, but what God has done. Because only God can save. Only God can make a difference. And so we need to talk like that as well, not to put the focus on us and become functional pagans in how we think about our service of the Lord. We need to be quick to pray and ask God to work. The same's true for whatever you do as you serve the Lord, whether it's at CU on campus, whether it's caring for the sick. We must direct our praise and our honour and all the credit to God. And you shouldn't feel like you have to hide your weaknesses. In fact, we should embrace them. Because God uses our weakness deliberately to show his power. Or as Paul says, for when I am weak, then I am strong.